welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I'm really pleased to be releasing this conversation with you. It's, for me, just really worked out well. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Spring Cheng, Steve March, and Jeremy Johnson. And this conversation is from our recent summit, The Evolution of Coaching. It's just one of the extraordinary conversations I had in there. So we're going to be talking about how can we reimagine what conditions are conducive to creating transformation in our times as we're moving out of modernity, which had its own conception of what it was to be a human being in the world and what transformation was, what it was to develop. This conversation is a, is a reimagining about these conditions. And for me, it was just really exquisite. I, I think there's an obvious resonance between the three of their work and it really shone through something really palpable emerged in this conversation for me. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Oh, and I just want to add, we weave in some of the recent conversations that have been taking place around adult development theory, this stage theory debate, which has been triggered by people like Nora Bateson and Dave Snowden. And so we weave that in. How do Jeremy, Stephen Spring see their critiques and how does that resonate with the way they see what development or emergence is? So... If you've been following those, you'll probably be interested in this conversation too. Let me just say a little bit about each of them. Steve March has been on the podcast a few times, the creator of Aletheia Coaching, which I'm a huge fan of. I recommend you check out those podcasts or his work. Spring Chang is a coach, teacher in leadership development and self-awareness and is the co-founder of the Resonance Path Institute. I've also been inspired by her work as well. And Jeremy Johnson is a writer, scholar, and author of the book, Seeing Through the World, Gene Gebser and Integral Consciousness, which I've really appreciated and recommended to quite a lot of people over the last couple of years. Just before we dive into the conversation, I'd love to tell you about the Neuroscience of Change very briefly. It's our new online coach training that's launching right now. It's all about how do you apply the latest discoveries in neuroscience into coaching? How can it deeply inform the way we coach in a very practical way? And incredible faculty people like Lisa Feldman Barrett, Amanda Blake, Dan Siegel, Richard Biazis, and others. So yeah, if you're interested in that, you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience of change. All right, so let's dive in. Here's the conversation with Spring, Steve, and Jeremy. All right. So, um, yeah, really good to be with you, Steve, Spring and Jeremy. And um, I was just saying to you, this has been one of the conversations that I've been looking forward to most inside of this summit. I've actually really, I've really been touched and inspired by each of your work over the past, you know, couple of years or so. So I'm really delighted to bring you together and to see what emerges out of this conversation. Um, which we call the great stage debate. And I was saying, I think I'm going to change that title um, because I don't think it's, it's too small a title and we're not going to be debating today. Um, but I, I'd like to begin just by asking each of you just to say a few words, just to introduce yourselves to people watching as well so, so they can get a sense of you. Spring, do you want to go first? Okay. Um I'm based at uh, uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, Washington State, and my angle into this um, field is uh, actually an unusual one. I used to be an acupuncturist um, and a Taoist uh, student, 
And uh, I approached uh, uh, coaching and uh, developmental theory from a um, native Chinese perspective. Um, and my focus has been integrating the uh, East Asian wisdom, uh, ancient wisdom with the modern uh, system thinking in development. Um, and I'm mostly a practitioner, more than a scholar, uh, but I uh, very much recognize the need to have my own theoretical um, articulation to guide my um, practice. Um, so glad to be here. Happy to go next. Um, so just building on these connections, my, my wife is also Chinese and an acupuncturist. So I, mm -hmm. I feel a lot of, uh, already a lot of um, resonance between us. And um, so I'm Steve March. Um, I'm living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, I'm the founder of a coach training company called Aletheia. And um, we make the, the distinction between self-improvement and self-unfoldment and uh, are exploring that and I'm delighted again to be here um, with Coaches Rising with Joel and in this conversation, which I've been really looking forward to as well. So um, over to you, Jeremy. Hey, thanks. Um, I have many hats. Um, I'm an author and a writer, I think, first and foremost at the moment. Um, I am an editor over at Integral Imprint, and I do some work with Integral Leadership Review. Uh, we're doing some very exciting things right now. I'm the, uh, the editor for the journal, um, or associate editor. Um, I think that's all that's relevant in terms of hats, but in terms of what I do, I'm, I'm looking at this transformation between culture and consciousness and really studying that and trying to understand that. Um, I guess one more hat would be PhD student um, at the California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, uh, probably going to be focusing on integral ecology. And many people know me for my work in writing on Gene Gepser's work, who is one of these integral philosophers, lesser known and lesser, spoke, lesser spoken about than maybe Ken Wilbur. Um, and I think that's part of why I've, I've, I've shown up here in that uh, Gepser talks to, he has a, a way of understanding unfoldment and transformations of consciousness that really isn't very linear and actually really kind of goes after the framing of developmental models immediately. And you wrote this back in the 1940s. So kind of my context coming in here, but um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interesting dance here between all of us. Well, maybe that's a good place to start, Jeremy, because yeah, we're going to explore today the, the world we're in, this transition between times as between worlds as it's often framed and uh, you know, what, what's breaking down and what, what's emerging. Can we even say what's emerging right now? And um, yeah, what ideas do we need to let go of? And, and, and what's that inviting from each of us in these times as individuals, as a collective and, you know, a lot of coaches, people interested in consciousness work and a path of transformation will be listening to this. And so maybe we can even kind of, speak to what ecologies of practice, that's a kind of another phrase which is gaining a lot of traction at the moment, might be, might be um, important in these times. And so, so um, may, maybe, Jeremy, just to come back to you there, you know, I, I just read your article about uh, liminality as well today, really, really beautiful article. Maybe just to begin with you, I'll come to each of us to just ask, like, 
how are you making sense of these times? What, what are the ways you're thinking and, and speaking about it in order to, to kind of try and make sense? And, and what do you mean by liminality as well? Just starting with the, the deep end then. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. I, I mean, the, the context of the article, uh, it's called Three Theses on Liminality. And it was my take on that word. Uh, it's, it's been, Joe Lightfoot had proposed that we call many of our circles exploring consciousness transformation, metamodernism, et cetera, the liminal web, right? The crypto folks, the folks doing the podcast and dialogos. Uh, the liminal web. So liminality and the, and the liminal is um, a very popular word in our communities to try to describe the place that we're in. Um, a spiritual, ontological, civilizational, ecological sense that the way things have been is coming undone. And also that there is something else that is emerging, right? There is something else that's coalescing through this process, like Gepser calls it. Um, the dissolution also has a solution, right? So there's a sense that there's continuity between the falling apart and then the coming back together. Um, and that would be like how I would hold this whole thing in terms of a vague statement. Um, but in the, in the article, I was sort of exploring different themes for that. Um, I think the first one was considering liminality a sort of threshold, right? A, a place or a state of being that feels in between, like right at the sunset or right at... Uh, uh, dawn, right? There's a sense like something's about to shift, but we're not quite there. So um, another theme I think uh, was interregnum, which I borrowed from uh, Antonio Gramsci, right? So like the old world is sort of holding on and the new cannot be born, right? The old is dying and the new cannot be born. And the interregnum, there's a great variety of morbid symptoms. Um, so there is this sense of uh, um, kind of a vertiginousness in it, in that we are attempting to innovate and imagine new ways of being in the world. And we're also kind of topsy-turvy about it. So we're, we're kind of bringing up the old ways and mistaking them for the new ways and vice versa. And it's very hard to get clarity and coherence about what actually is emerging and what is simply kind of a reification. And uh, Steve's point uh, a few minutes ago, if that was on the recording, um, <laughs> before we started, um, that developmental models uh, in this context are very much attempting to describe a process of unfoldment, unfoldment and emergence, but doing so perhaps in a way that is quite dated at this point, right? Eurocentric, um, static, right? And there's a kind of leniency we have towards those models because we feel there's no other way to articulate emergence on paper, right? On the map. We just say the map is not the territory and leave it there. And by leaving it there, we don't look at all that shadow, right? The Eurocentrism, the stagist orientation, the Cartesianism, those were all kind of left in place and accommodated for. And then I think because of that, we sort of allow that to sneak back into the communities and the cultures that, that are holding those maps and trying to use those maps. So it's, so there's, there's an example of an interregnum. Um, and that's the last point, and I'll give it up for us to go into dialogue um, is, is Janice faced, right? And um, I brought up Janice and I brought up Koyokwaki, which is the lunar goddess of Aztec cosmology, which brings up this theme of dismemberment and renewal, right? The lunar cycle of like waxing and waning and really trying to lean into that as a kind of soul work that we're doing right now um, in this Janice faced context. So those are just three framings to look at where we're at, but we can, dig in further, I'm sure. It's 
Great. And I, I, I'm glad you said dialogue there because I forgot to say, you know, I am um, don't feel free to ask each other, riff off each other. Uh, I don't need to be the, you know, the kind of go-to. Um, so, yeah, I'm just curious if um, Spring or Steve, you want to pick up on what Jeremy said and this question of, of like making sense of these times. How are you doing that? Start. <laughs> um uh, with the lunar cycle and the wax and wane, a frame I would like to think of is um, uh, a great author I like is called Jeremy Lent. <laughs> uh, he writes extensively about the integration of East and West um, conceptual framework. And he used the words animated. He used the distinction of animated intelligence and conceptual intelligence which actually parallel with my work, uh, Resonance Code. Uh, in my work, I call it uh, the um, dense plane um, intelligence versus light intelligence. And I think in the <clears throat> uh, parallel with what Jeremy said, what's being dismembered or dis, um, disrupting is the old way of leading or dominating or giving pre- privilege to the abstract and conceptual intelligence at the expense of um, inhibiting or downplaying the animated intelligence. Whereas this shifting that's happening is a reorienting ourselves to our, so that by animated intelligence, uh, we mean that our, the life itself, the fact that we're here breathing, heart pumping, and all the complexities of biology is working. Every single cell embodies incredible life intelligence that works on the, at a complex level that's beyond any sophisticated model that our conceptual um, uh, can predict or analyze or control. <laughs> and it's right here. We don't need to effort at all. Uh, it's the matter of whether we can access it or not. Um, so, um, and that's the animated intelligence we have. And that's the intelligence that's wanting to show up, wants to um, take more of a leader, leading role in our individual awareness, our organizational awareness, or even global awareness. Um, that's the intelligence of life that wants to uh, switch out of its subjugated place and um, wanting our attention. So that's the wax and wane. And, and also, um, I think Jeremy's metaphor of the goddess, um, that it's almost like in our consciousness, there's the, the, the female goddess and, and then the masculine god, and they are kind of in a dance, right? They, they're, they're, they're switched out of the old dance, old interplay, and wanting to reach a new balance. Um, and uh, so that's how I the lens through which I see the world. And also I want to add in, um, very interesting that I, I find that in our mix here, <laughs> so uh, um, there are, you know, we're connected, you know, Jeremy, you are a editor of a great, um, you know, this uh, integral leadership reveal and a great scholar and connected with groups that really go into this liminal um, great intellectuals that are moving towards this more holistic way of seeing things. And uh, currently my work is I'm like going back to, <laughs> to time. I'm working with um, primarily Chinese women 
uh, in Asia who um, you probably won't call them intellectuals. They are connected with the old wisdom in their embodied way uh, and accessing some um, age-old um, wisdom in, in a new way. And I'm, I'm seeing that this is very exciting that in this space, this masculine um, uh, intellectual energy and the, this feminine embodied intelligence are meeting and uh, dialoguing here. Yeah, there's some really great themes here to pick up on. Um, this distinction that Spring you just offered between these two kinds of intelligences, in my way of languaging it in, in the Aletheia work, you know, I work with uh, an understanding of depth. We get, we get born into the world um, really at the deepest depth, and then we s go through a process of surfacing. And that deepest depth is a depth of uh, non-duality, non-separateness. And slowly as we begin to develop, there's a, a way in which the ego begins to form in a structuring process that, uh, that ends in a feeling of separation. And then beyond that, we continue to develop in such a way that in some sense, we um, recover this lost sense of depth because as we surface, it seems like there's a, there's a kind of self-forgetting that happens in the midst of this. We forget our origins. We forget where our, our, our true nature. And so there's a return in some sense to um, uh, dropping back into depth, getting more grounded, more present, dropping back in, reintegrating, and rediscovering our innate wholeness, our completeness, rediscovering our humanity, our love, our you know, this, our compassion, our perseverance, our strength, our, our joys, our bliss, you know, uh, these different kinds of things, um, which very much is this uh, sort of underlying operating system, which is always here, always available. And yet the ways in which we take ourselves to be, to be separate um, uh, actually winds up uh, with us feeling fragmented and, you know, familiar to all of us as coaches is this, this seemingly pervasive experience of not being enough. You know, almost every single coaching client I've ever worked with has come, has come to me, you know, whether they've said this explicitly or whether it's sort of there just beneath the surface of somehow feeling like who they are today isn't enough, right? They, they need to improve in some way. They need to, they need to transcend themselves in some way to be better. Um, and of course, in, in my work, Rather than giving into those self-improvement projects, which I've discovered just seem to reinforce the sense of self-deficiency. Instead, it's more letting go of those self-improvement projects, uh, relaxing our defenses and actually dropping back into depth and reintegrating um, our nature. And as we do that, it actually winds up being a developmental process. Um, and so it's both simultaneously a kind of going back, um, literally going back into the past, but it's also going back into our depth, the depth, which is always here. It, it's not actually in the past. It's also right here. But at the same time, there's, uh, there's a generation and a bringing forth of the future as we do that, a development. And so, you know, Jeremy mentioned, um, this comment that I think I made before we started our official conversation here, that, that from my perspective, what we have a certain conceptualization of, of human development 
that I see has become very popular in adult, adult developmental psychology, in, and that's been appropriated and brought into the coaching field. And um, I've certainly played a, a role in that. Many people have. And I think in my 20 years as a coach, what I've started to re- recognize that's now leading me into the view that I just presented is that in a way we've conceptualized development in a way that is, that is very Eurocentric, that has very Cartesian, has traces of Cartesianism still in it, um, which, is the, which is the separation of subject and object. Um, uh, and, it, and so it's, it's actually a formulation, a conceptualization, an abstraction, really, of development that has been decontextualized, that has, that has been um, so abstracted away from um, the actual lived experience that spring you're you're talking about um, that that it becomes um, it becomes you know and I think this is Nora Bateson's point almost a form of violence when we take that abstracted view and then we look at someone through that lens you know we apply it to them and the ways that that in a sense like we're laying over top of them a template for fragmentation. And so I think that what's happening in the world today is quite clearly a call for development. There's no question about that. And development is a real thing. You know, it's clear that children develop into adults, adults, you know, continue, continue to develop. But what I don't hear people recognizing is the need to develop our understanding of development, that the conceptualizations that we have of development are abstracted and decontextualized and don't actually help us to generate development, help us to, to, um, to move in a more developing way in response to what's happening in the world. So, um, so th- that's what I think is, you know, especially as we look at what's unfolding and, and how we, we can participate with that. Th- that, I think, is something that needs to shift. And that, that's what I've been working on. Yeah, Jeremy, do you want to jump in? Uh, I was wondering if, if it would be good to weave in some of Gepser, Gepser's framework uh, and, and context in, in respect to this development question. Um, so Gepser has this interesting approach that has been described as cultural phenomenology, and it's attempting to be descriptive rather than prescriptive. Now, if you attempt to describe anything and say it's one mode of cognition and another, there's going to be distinctions, but uh, maybe in the, in the words of Edgar Morin, how do we distinguish without, how do we discern without disjoining those mm-hmm. relationships? How do we actually preserve those relationships as they are alive, right? In a kind of warm data context. And um, if you just read Gepser and the way he weaves the structures of consciousness is what he describes them, they're always an interrelationship with each other. Uh, the ones that are supposed to be happening much later are always, always co-present in the past in, a, in some sort of latent interrelationship. And then the past is always present in what comes after, right? All of those dimensions are always at work, like a kind of mycelial um, network underneath the surface that's shaping and forming in the present constantly. 
So, so it's that kind of modeling, I think, which isn't really exactly a modeling, but a mode of thinking, a method of thinking that's more enlivened and relational that we really need, right? The theory of, emer of emergence, I feel like is a bit friendlier to this. It's just people talking about emergence, right? Just came from the emerge gathering. Um, I, I feel like that's a friendlier word to talk about development than development because development is also, of course, things develop and grow and fulfill themselves and then fall apart and die, right? So there's another side to development, which is letting go, dissolution. Um, so we really need a kind of multidimensional way of thinking and talking about what we mean by growth, uh, because this, the implication of development is it's going one way. It's growing and growing and growing and growing. You don't want that to always happen. You want things to pause. You want to have uh, a controlled burn, right? To, to, to burn back some of that growth to allow things to regenerate. And I think we find a lot of um, lessons and teachers in the more than human world for how this actually mm. happens, right? And it also helps us kind of move back into that context. So we need more relational and ecological thinking to hold a theory of development, if we're even going to call it development, right? Um, but yeah, yeah, I'll pause there. I would riff a little more um, on it. Um, I, I felt very emotional, actually, when Steve talked about how the current uh, framework, when we apply it without discernment of that particular client client's culture, is a form of violence. That just struck me because it reson I resonate so deep with that. And, uh, and it's very sad for me to watch this violence being conducted unconsciously. Um, uh, and um, for me, the development, the word, it can, has two dimensions. One is the linear, and the other one is a fractal version. That's why the Jeremy talk about the future is present. The template of the future is already present in the deep past. And in the deep past, there's the seeds for a, a further future. And that's a fractal at, at every moment in time. There's the DNA for the entire development. Um, and that that concept is is in uh, you know Gibbs's work and is in almost every culture's native indigenous cultures concept. So that it, again, it's a fractal; it's already there. And uh, for me, the the actually the um, adult development theory is is very exciting because it provides a framework. And and so in my work, instead of using the framework to apply to another person. I build a framework that's not unlike development of um, adult development, but instead I do not prescribe the pre descriptions, but I invite a person to fill in their own description according to this framework, according to where the, how they are in fresh, um, fleshing out the fractal at their particular uh, coordinate in life. And, and I think that's a, um, more gentle and compassionate way to use concept is not to apply it to another person, but use it as a, a scaffold to support and let that person to fill in, to flesh out on their own, rather than giving out, you know, what this development stage means, what their uh, value and the, sh and the shadow and where their score is. Let that person, because a person is a world, is a whole universe, that person's life contains the entire history of evolution and trusting a person's wisdom has more than enough to um, fill out the scaffold to support their own development. Mm 
that's my, kind of like my um, guiding principle. So, yeah. yeah. I, I want to pick up on this because there's another point of resonance here. One of the things I've been curious about is, you know, do descriptions of development actually help us to generate development? And, and I used to hold that the answer was yes. This was, you know, me in the, in the 2000s, maybe between 2000 and 2010, I was really committed to that view. And I gave it a good try. And I would say that broadly speaking, uh, my conclusion was actually no, that descriptions of development don't help us generate development. And that, you know, to your point, Spring, that what does help us to generate development is actually, is actually working in and uh, it directly in the context in the world of the client, exactly as they experience themselves, each other, the coaching relationship in a deeply, deeply contextual way. And descriptions of development are always decontextualized, right? And, and, and if we have a decontextualized description of development and we assess someone at such and such a level, and then we say, well, with every good intention, of course, I want to help you get to the next level, right? And I want to design a development plan or a coaching program or whatever word we want to use for this, this thing that we as coaches give to the client, right? I want to design a way for you to get from where you are to there. There's lots of good intentionality there. That's not in question. Though what's in question is the efficacy of that. And what's in question is um, even beyond the efficacy of that. And this is what really started to, to affect me emotionally was I started to see exactly this, the way in which there was, there was a wounding that often happened there. There was a way in which clients often felt unseen that there was something about them that they held dear to themselves that somehow was not at all in the coaching conversation, was not being seen by the coach, was not being responded to by the coach. So, so then the question is, um, if, do we need to hold on to these descriptions of development if they don't help us to generate development? Do we need to ever do assessments of development? My answer is no, we don't need to hold on to the description. We don't need to do developmental assessments, but we can relate to clients. We can be in a, in a deep contextual relationship and in an inquiry and in an exploration about life, about what's here right now, about what's happening in their lives that ultimately is developmental without ever needing to make an assessment. And so that's what I've shifted into. And the whole idea is bringing, bringing back context, which is never not really here. It's, it's as if we've pretended it wasn't here when we tried to view them through, through these sort of decontextualized lenses and frameworks. But so it's really resting into what's already here. And then we start to notice that, in fact, uh, what's already here has an, uh, the property of emergence. It's, it's literally baked in. It's literally part of our own aliveness. And so that's something that we can foster, that we can create um, conditions for that which are mostly created by noticing how we're, how we're creating conditions that thwart unnatural unfoldment, right? So if, we, if we're thwarting natural unfoldment and we can just relax those things, the natural unfoldment and emergence that, that is our expression of aliveness will just simply happen, right? And it turns out to be a more potent way of, of developing. And I'm with you, Jeremy, about do we still call it development? Like, do we need to, to drop that off? I think that's a really good point. It's more potent and it, it's actually more effortless. And I, you know, this is the Taoist part of me coming through in resonance with what you're saying, Spring. You know, it's, it's like 
it's like there, there's, there actually is a more effortless way forward here. Um, so <clears throat> that's what I wanted to add into this. Yeah. Fantastic. Steve. Thank you. <clears throat> I, um, I wanted to weave in two metaphors or well, at least one, and then we'll see about the second, but, um, uh, the evolution of cephalopods I've always used as an illustration of temporics and the past and the future. Um, so squids, octopi, um, in the very ancient world, they had shells on their exteriors, like the Nautilus. And over millions of years, as fish evolved, they needed to move around faster. So something very interesting happened. Um, the, the Nautilus shell and, and the spiral shell was such a good image and metaphor for time. So it's a good, keeps all of that in mind. Um, but essentially the shell turned inside out. It went into the middle of their body and transformed into this, it's called a gladius, I think in um, squid um, or the cuddle bone and cuttlefish, but it became this beautiful aerodynamic looking um, bone at the center of their body. The past formed the body of the future, right? And that's the kind of relational temporics I really do think we need to consider in terms of development and emergence that the past is always in interrelationship and creatively refolded into the present as the context of the present shifts and changes. Um, morphologically, this is true. And I think in terms of human beings, you know, that there's so much of our past that does come forward and is refashioned in some way um, in our own history and the history of consciousness. This is very true, um, especially right now in the context of modernity kind of unraveling, right? And the context of um, our global civilization really feeling uprooted and de-worlded. There's a speaking about like what's going on in the present, what's already emerging in the present, there seems to be a kind of descendental or imminental turn or a need for it, right? Where we see disaster and catastrophe and ecological collapse, we see the future present in a destructive way, but we can also turn towards that, I think, in a very creative way and transformational way. Uh, so, so yeah, I think just a few themes there, right? The, the complexity of time, and we're even when we're even talking about evolution, it's far less linear. And, and <clears throat> sensing into what's actually emerging in the present, because there's so many lessons that are already here. They're teaching us how we should be or can be reorienting. And then it's a dialogical process, right? Then, and I think very open-ended, there's no prescriptive way to come back down to earth, but I think there are themes that are very much present and, and cohering right now. Jeremy, you use the term temporics, and I'm, I'm curious about that term. I'm wondering if you can unpack it a little bit. Oh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, a word that Gepser uses offhandedly to say, like, thinking about time, the time's complexity, oh, interval to time, right? So time in the, in the, in the multidimensional sense, like time as clock time and rhythm and lunar time, right? So all of those different modes of time and timelessness, how do we kind of hold that all, not in a conceptual framework, but as a kind of, I don't know, fluidic reality that we're just participating mm -hmm. in and, and aware of, right? Um, so, so yeah, that, that's not exactly a great definition, but the, he uses that word all the time. But it's helpful, I find. Yeah, there's, you know, I think, I think that this is interesting. I wanted to ask about that because time is, you know, I think we think of time like, well, there was the past and there's the present and there's the future. But what I notice in my work is that the past continues to unfold right now. 
in the present. And, you know, we all have experiences of this. Like, you know, we have an experience, like we had a conversation last week and maybe a friend of ours was showing up and, you know, we walked away thinking like, wow, they were a little off today. Something was, some, something's up. I don't know what it is. And then several days later, we, we, you know, find some new information. We get a call from them and suddenly we have an explanation. We, we, you know, we have a sense of what's been happening with them that they weren't mentioning it. And so our whole experience of what that was is continuing to unfold, right? And the future is actually unfolding right now too, in the present moment as well, you know, in the ways that we can continue to, you know, open new future possibilities or close future possibilities that's happening right now too. So the way that we inhabit time is not, I think, in the, in, the, in the way that we all assume we inhabit time. You know, like the future is unknowable because it hasn't happened and the past is unchangeable because, well, it's the past, right? That, that I think this is maybe part of what we have to start to wake up to is that it is, you know, to, I don't know if I'm using the term correctly not or not, but we have to wake up to temporix, right? We have to wake up to the way we inhabit time. Yeah, I'm um, curious. There's something you said, Jeremy, which was about that we, you know, we often turn, uh, we see the what's going on in the world right now and the crises we face and, um, you know, it can feel overwhelming. And I don't think you said it quite like that, but there's a way that we can turn to what's unfolding and in a creative way. And, um, you know, it was speaking about something things like emergence you know and unfolding as opposed to develop and development and, and a linear idea of progress which is simplistic and cartesian and i'm just i'm just curious because i i can feel myself you know the the weight of these times and and how discombobulated i i can feel and um and 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 so i'm wondering like how we can um you know, like to turn towards these times in a, in a creative way, not, not, not in a way that we're, you know, just reaching prematurely for some positive, positive kind of vision for the future because we're avoiding the descent or the fear we might be feeling. But, yeah, like what, how, how might we orient in these times? And I guess that's a question for you, Jeremy, but for everyone, actually. Yeah. I know you talk about descending as well, spring. So, yeah. Can I, I, I would like to respond to that, yeah. I feel, um, which is exactly the, for me, the uh, response to your question is actually in the way you asked it, Joe, because you said several times, feel, you know, how we are feeling discombobulated, feel mm. weighted. Um, and uh, feeling is actually at the seat of our animated intelligence, our, our life wisdom. And, and I feel this is, <laughs> you know, the, um, and also feeling um, is in a way, it started with a subjective experience. But sub- this, I, I feel actually, you know, in the coaching field, there's a um, kind of a um, thing to say, to, to make what's a subject object. To, to, to turn our subjective experience into an object to, to look at. And there's actually another reverse pathway, reverse um, developmental pathway, the descending pathway, is actually to go deeper into the subjective feeling. So when we actually uh, um, be mindful and ha- 
and be skillful, be creative in going into this exact these feelings of whatever negative term that depressed, heavy, uh, discombobulated. Um, there's a doorway um, that will lead us out of this Cartesian world, out of this illusion, and out of this linearly constructed uh, sense of ourself and sense of our world, and that can um, allow us to actually go into the ocean of richness that has always been there around us. I feel the the um, to allow our, to allow the feeling to come into us. <laughs> Because the, the feeling is actually our connection with the, all the relationships that's around us. Feeling is the language of relationship. Um, um, yeah, so the, the, and, and the feeling is what allows us to become more uh, embodied. So I would say, let, there's a reverse pathway of let, the, let what the object become subject because feeling is actually the world talking to us, knocking on our door, say, let me be you. <laughs> let me come into your world. Um, so. And just to add something before Jeremy and Steve jumps in, maybe what you're saying there, Spring, speaks to the Gebs' notion of perspectival and aperspectival and that, yes, yeah, subject, object, there's been an emphasis on abstraction, you know, developing in a, in a certain cognitive sense and, Mm-hmm. Um, that that's just one one mode, you know, and um, right. and right. there's something that you're speaking of to me, which is not just merely feeling, but it's um, it's this resonance of the whole, yes, of yeah. the interconnected interconnectedness of life. Yeah, and so, so I, yeah, I think I want to make a, a, dis, uh, a clarification here. I think in the uh, Western world, the subjectivity and the feeling ha- has more of, a, more of a connotation that's in, uh, confined within individual. But wh- what I'm talking here is feeling and subjectivity is not confined individual, but it's more of a pan subjectivity. The, the whole world is an I, and I am a cell of this big, big being <laughs> that's around me. So I'm feeling not just myself, but in resonance with all the other cells. Um, that's part of this bigger body, this collective soma that I'm part of. Um, that's, that's the feeling and the subject, pan-subjectivity that I'm talking about. Yeah. This is exactly my, my experience of dropping deeper in depth, that we follow the feeling. And as we follow the feeling and really explore exactly what's here in our direct experience, and um, in a way where we keep going for, you know, a, a curiosity about what's fundamental here, what's, you know, in my work, um, I shift, I invite the clients to shift and I shift into what I call a poetic way of attuning to the world, you know, through a love of truth, beauty, and goodness for its own sake of really recognizing what's here and experiencing it, feeling it. And what, un- what begins to unfold is exactly what Jeremy was talking about and, and also what you're talking about, Spring, which is that this, ca- this capacity to discern, but yet to not have those discernments separate and fragment. And so we can still have a discernment of, of a difference and effulgence of diversity of um, all kinds of different things. But just because we can discern this from that doesn't mean this is separate from that. 
And yes. in some way, it's it's settling back into this deeper, this this deeper, more primordial experience of the world that is both a resonance of the past and also inscribed within the future, because it's it's right here, always accessible, and it's this place that really lies the antidote to that sense of not enoughness that I was talking about earlier. This is where we land into a sense of innate wholeness. You know, we land into a sense of completeness. And so that sense of feeling enough isn't on the other end of some kind of self-improvement project, no matter how well intended. It's actually, it, it's actually on, the, on the end or it's an unfoldment of relaxing that urge to control and to get there and instead to be here and to be here more deeply. And as we do that, we actually land in. So the curious thing here is that I've stopped talking about competencies in my work um, because competency models, which are all over the place in coaching, you know, we assess against a competency model and then try to close the gap to become more competent. Yet in this world, any competency model is likely to be obsoleted very quickly. So I've started to talk, and I'm not entirely happy with the language, but I'm, I'm grabbing for something that's still emerging. I started to talk about metacompetencies, and metacompetencies are ways of relating to not knowing, and that open to not knowing, that welcome not knowing, that, that uh, embrace incompetency even as we become more competent at navigating a world that is dynamic and unfolding and, and obsoleting old ways of being at an accelerating pace. So that, that I think is part of this. And so I, I consider dropping in depth as one of these metacompetencies because it's a landing into this, even if this is something that we're not sure what it is. You know, there's, a, there's an uncertainty here and I'm not knowing this here, but how can that be a positive thing? How can that be an opening into wholeness? How can that be an opening into responding to what's really happening as opposed to a problem that we have to get rid of, right? So, so I think that's part of, in response to your, your question, Joel, about like, how do, how do we, how do we navigate these times? It's like, we, we have to learn how to embrace the fact that we don't know how to navigate these times to navigate these times. Right. Yeah. The more we try to push that to the side or to deny that or to pretend that we know what we're doing, the more we're um, we're just circulating back into a way of being that has demonstrated that's demonstrated itself as not really being workable. Agreed. Um, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Gepster has this word that he uses called he says we need to be senseful, senseful, like not abstract about what this transformation is. And working with evolution of consciousness, um, working with that unfoldment, it's a senseful unfoldment. It has to be in the concrete, imminent, relational present, right? That living relational present is where transformation occurs, where the past is, um, where that wholeness is, where our becoming is, right? It's all here, ancestors and the unborn in, in that kind of more cosmic sense and spiritual sense. It's all here in this relational present. And so Gebser uses a, uh, a few different metaphors, but he likes this term diaphaneity to describe the present, right? The present is open. Beings are open and in relation to each other. Uh, he describes this move into the aperspectival or this aperspectival world, which is part of this um, 
his attempt to describe what was unfolding in the 20th, 21st century um, was a shift in, in our orientation from that subject object uh, to the relation between things, right? The interiority between things, the, um, the openness and affinity between beings. Uh, and that is where Gebser saw at least modes of thinking kind of showing up in, in the 20th century. And the other aspect of this that weaves in time to this discussion, once again, in temporics, um, is if the perspectival world and modernity has been really good at that subject-object Cartesian split, right? Really good at distancing and disjoining, right? And creating a kind of um, uh, transformation of the world and doing so, right? With the empirical method, industrialization, our relationship with earth and just the way we embody our own consciousness has been standing at a distance. And there's a kind of violence in that. And there's a lot of power. But in that process, we've unleashed, um, as it were, a reckoning with time. We've, we've really had this sort of spatial thinking for now hundreds of years and sort of coming to a um, dramatic conclusion. And for Gepser, it was this move from spatial thinking to temporics, right, into time. There's a line from Andreas Malm's book, uh, In the Progress of the Storm, it's a climate uh, book, uh, I just found so Gipsarian where he's speaking about, you know, time is th what is really going on here right now in the Anthropocene, the fossil fuels that we have burned 100, 150 years ago. They're, they're present right now in the warming of, of, of the air and the sea and the rain, right? Like they're in the climate right now, those fossil fuels. And then you take that millions of years back too, to the organisms that those were. And the fires that are burning now are also involved in future centuries and how this is all going to unfold. And he says, uh, we have, um, paraphrasing him here, we have descended right into the whole of time and the air is heavy with time. And I, I love those descriptions. They're, they're kind of in a, there's sort of an angst around it, but there's also this potential and an invitation, I think, as we're all saying to uh, become present, right? As this locus of transformation, like where we're being brought and invited into is a relationship with the present, right? Where all of that time happens, happens to be. Um, so how do we do that, right? I think that's, that's a big inquiry uh, for me and I think all of us here. How do we have this new relationship with time and place and presence? Um, if we can start with that as the context of, of our inquiries rather than what's the next stage, you know, what's the next level of development? Um, I think we, we'd be much better off. Yeah. I really want to respond to one thing just briefly that you're saying here, which is that one of my favorite um, design philosophers is an Australian named Tony Fry. And um, he's looking at, at a response to the unsustainable ways of being that we've had um, from a design perspective, which I think is a very interesting um, leverage point in the culture. And design as a profession has been so concerned historically with the design, designing in space or design of space. You know, the design of products is all considered spatial, but he has, he calls for a designing in time and a recognition that all designs are always designing in time. And so even the designs like, you know, of this, which is a design in space is simultaneously designing in time because this, of course, has a past and a future. And, um, and so, yeah, I think there's a lot of resonance with this. It's like 
how do we start to recognize that the actions that we're taking, all of us, all of us are designers, all of us are designing in time, um, opening and closing future possibilities. This is something that I think we haven't really owned. We haven't, and because we haven't owned it, we're not responsible for it. So yeah, I'm, I'm resonating a lot with what you're, what you're saying about Gebser's view and, and your view. Yeah. Can I continue, Joe? <laughs> Just refer. Um, I, I, in a way, I feel like actually development at the core is a designing process. We we are actually uh, we want to empower people to design their own evolutionary pathway, developmental pathway, instead of prescribing a description or generalized description and scoring. Um, and uh, um, I want to. It, riffing on this uh, theme of ecology, um, you know, in a way, we we need to redesign the part of ourselves that we have already developed out. <laughs> you know, we, we're progressing on these. Um, abs- the, the thing is, development of conceptual mind is a ladder. You know, no, nobody, no baby born as a intellectual with uh, all the <laughs> all the um, knowledge in their head they have to go through this ladder and in go through this ladder the higher we go the more actually we left behind and those things those part of ourselves that we left behind that has been you know um, kind of actually excluded from the matrix of scoring <laughs> whatever that the, the the chaotic part of ours the, the irrational part of ours uh, the lazy part of ours, the you know, the all these like unwanted part of ourselves, the the waste of industrialized, you know, there you, there are all these pollution in our exterior industrial industrialized life, and internally there's also lots of part of ourselves we kind of discarded and kind of automatically labeled them as uh, not useful. I, you know, that's, that's why we're all feeling insecure. There's so much insecurity and not trusting oneself and not enough is we are looking at this like a litter of garbage of ourselves and not knowing their actually life. So, so part of it is how, to, how do we help people to, how do we create a space to, for uh, ourselves and our client to feel safe to walk into what's considered as unwanted part of ourselves and reclaiming them and redesign them. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, ultimately the ecological way of looking at ourselves is to recycle, to re-embrace, to revalue what's called being, what's being called waste. So, so in a way, it's an antidote to that scoring and the matrixy part of looking at ourselves. It's like every single voice in ourselves is has its own value and wisdom. Let me give you a concrete example. I recently worked with a, a woman uh, who's a mom, uh, a Chinese woman. She, her, you know, the educational system in China right now is just absolutely brutal. It, it, it's this industrialized way of make, um, scoring kids at the nth level and, and it's driving lots of kids like crazy. And she is in such agony watching her daughter going, being tortured through the system. She told me that she almost felt this urge to kill. So, so I actually, um, um, I um, facilitate her, like what Steve is talking about, that process of um, it, it's okay to, so not judging or um, uh, inhibiting any of these, but 
facilitating her to get in touch with the felt sensation of that urge to kill mm. and, and let go of that story and just deeply embody that feeling, let that feeling to infuse her nervous system with that slight to feel this impulse. And this rage, eventually, uh, she integrated this felt sensation and she realized behind it, it's an it's a, it's a, uh, impulse to create. It's the impulse to, to um, create something that's more um, embodying what she believes. So, um, you know, in, 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 of course, in our traditional culture as an as a, uh, Asian woman, this violence is not wanted, is definitely in the, in the, in the garbage. Uh, pain, uh, she, she's not going to uh, feel safe to talk about this in any public situation. Um, but facilitating her to go into this garbage can and retrieving it and and allowing her to redesign it is you know, ultimately help her to integrate um, this sensation, these sensible. In, in, so that's what Jeremy talked about is the sensible way. Mm. Yeah. And she, you know, she redesigned a new story around this uh, this this energy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um couple of directions we could go. I mean, I, it makes me think of what I read in your work, Jeremy, around Gebs's, um honoring of um, what might in the traditional developmental models be called like lower stages of development or, you know, you know like um, less mature, but actually that um, at least the way I hear you spring and Jeremy talk about them is no, there's like a, an absolute um, necessity to these mutations to to use Gebs's word uh of of consciousness you know that there's a there's a brilliance inside each one of them that's a necessity for us to to um to find a sense of flourishing on the planet yeah there's um something along the lines and i think this comes up in a lot of work uh like jeremy lent's work as well and the integrated worldview he speaks to but for Gebser, um as he understands it, and I, as I understand it, nothing short of the whole human being has to kind of come forward right now, right? The past, the present, and then this open relationship with the future and with our becoming. Uh, this means the whole history of consciousness in some way is being, because of the crisis that we're in, all of it has to be brought in. Like we have to really be aware of all of who we are and have been as it has unfolded. So there's different structures. I haven't gone into the names, but I can mention a few, the archaic, magic, mythic. And again, they're not distinct times. They're like all interrelated, but all of it has to come forward. So traditional ancestral practices, animistic um, ontologies, as it were, traditions, worldviews. Uh, and then also the modern, right? And there's aspects of the modern that is certainly the mental structure, as Gebser says, uh, important and aren't going away and, you know, having the scientific method and writing philosophy books, I don't think is going to go away, but there's a kind of decentering of the dominant mode of thinking and being right. It's unraveling, it's decentering, and we're sort of moving in, a, in this, into this more relational space of, of the whole history of our being, right. That all has to kind of be um, come forward and then also find a new relationship 
rearrange, right? There, there's a reshifting, there's a kind of metamorphosis. Everything's kind of turned to goop and restructuring. And so this, this very much at the heart of Gebser's work that there's nothing short of that because of the intensity of the planetary crisis that we're in, nothing short of that really will be able to address uh, uh, or respond in, in kind to the crisis. Um, yeah, actually, I find that your metaphor journey just now, the story you tell about the snail, um, the extra skeleton being enfolded in, I feel like to me, that's what happened with the conceptual framework is that instead of being the leading uh, facade, it's actually we need to like enfold it in <laughs> uh, to use it as a center to guide us, but uh, relate with the outer world with more of this amorphous relational um, way of being. Um, And I have a question about, um, in a a sense, um, I don't want to fall into the trap here of of like trying to get you to define a prescribed notion of, of like where we're going or what the self is. But the, the question I have is, is about, um, what is the self and the role of presence? Like, are, are we being invited to evolve out of, you know, Steve, you talk about parts, you know, this depth of parts. Uh, Spring, you've talked about conceptual uh, knowing and, and Jeremy, um, this like the, the, the perspectival or like, um, you know, rationality. I'm not, dis- I'm describing it in a simplistic way, but, so, so it does seem like there's an invitation to, to evolve into something um, which we've been talking about in this whole conversation, this, this mode of being or perceiving uh, our experience, which, which includes conceptuality, but is, but is more than that. And so, and, and so I'm, I guess I'm curious if like, we could speak about the, that move a bit more and the role of presence itself in that, because that seems to be integral to it. And, 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 and this expanded sense of who we are, you know, because I hear each of you talking about our relationality coming to the foreground. And Steve, I know you've talked about this move into the depth of fluid differences, our prior relatedness uh, moving into the foreground. So, so I guess that's, I think there's a question inside of that. I'm just see where you take. That. I, I think that I th- uh, the question that I hear is, is one of like how do we how do we answer the question what is a human being you know what is a what is a self and um you know it's on the face of it it seems like a silly question to ask because don't we all know the answer already but it isn't a silly question because in fact what's true is we don't know right uh th- there is something going on here right here that is so intimate to us that that is still unfolding in, in into 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 reality in a certain kind of way but um, we've we've been in a in a kind of historical period, um, uh, at least in um, in in recent terms, in which this idea of the self has been very uh, singular. Like we have a self, like I am Steve, right? It hasn't always been like that. The idea, the ideas, the experiences of being uh, who and what we are hasn't always been like that. We forget that, right? And it seems like this moment of metacrisis that we're in is once more a call to um, reimagine and re-understand uh, and uh, re-express who and what we are. 
And it seems to me that we're being called into recognizing uh, uh, that there's a multiplicity here in each one of us that um, if we drop down into an even deeper depth, that we're also a process self, a self that is in the act of, of emerging, right? That that's also the case. So I'm here talking in, in terms of in terms of the four depth ontology that I work with, you know, the depth of parts is this multiplicity, the depth of process is this more emergent self, which is deeply relational, which is a, a you know, which is prior relatedness, meaning it's a, it's a feeling of relate, relatedness. If you can imagine in uh, prior to the distinction between me and you, it's an it's a feeling of us before there's a me and you, there's a me and a you, and so we are sinking back into this field of relatedness, which we've all been talking about in our own ways, but even deeper than that is is deepening into a sense of innate wholeness, which is the which is um, the term presence. That's where I use that term is is to recognize recognizing that there's a presence, but when we're dropping into this depth of presence. Um, this is a transpersonal depth. So what we recognize as our innate wholeness is not at all separate from the innate wholeness of anything and anyone, right? Uh, this is where we land into recognizing that fundamentally we're loving and compassionate. And the love that I am is the love that everyone is. That the compassion that I can embody and realize in myself is the, is the compassion that everyone is, right? And that's another form of relationship right? It's a deeper form of relationship. And then we can drop even further in, into the depth of non-duality, which is more, even more profoundly um, interdependent and co-emergent, right? In, 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 a, in, a, in a completely radical way. And so it seems to me that there's this cultural moment of metacrisis that is calling for this, um, somehow this kind of an unfolding recognition that this is what a human being is uh, in some, in some sense that we're all of this. And that's, that's really re-owning and remembering and re-embodying and reintegrating um, the whole history of being human in a certain sense, but in such a way that we're also creating the future of being human at the same time. So it's not a, it's not a regressive going back. It's, but it's a reintegration of who and what we are that we've forgotten as a way of actually moving forward. So I, I think this is, this is what I see unfolding right now. Uh, beautiful, beautifully said, Steve. Uh, I, I want to offer, um, uh, I think it's a Native American saying that I am all my relations. Mm. I am all my relationship. So, um, so it, it's like I'm looking outside, whatever I have in relationship with the, 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 the wetland outside my house, the you all and uh, um, my um, students, collaborators in China, each one of this relationship together, coming together formed me. And, and also um, I think when, when, in modern time, when we used to, as you know, we have mirror, we have uh, videos, we do so much. We look into mirror, we see, oh, I'm embodied as a female, and I have this skin color, and I'm this race, race and that. We we tend to be fixated on our 
look of who we are. But actually, if we go into inside and we actually tap into that place of embodying all the relations among me, there's a part of me energetically resonate with um, European people, resonating with Western people, resonating with masculine energy. That's what brought me here, uh, despite my uh, embodied look, right? So, uh, and the same, same way, similar as I look at my dog, I felt this incredible resonance, deep relationship with him. And there's a part of me that's energetically represented by my relationship with my uh, animal companion. <laughs> so it's really like getting out of our skin and feel into each part of us through particular relationship we formed around us. And also that includes those difficult relationships. Like for example, I, you know, I recently had really uh, intense conflict with someone I work with who I view as represent very deep in, ingrained uh, patriarch, Chinese patriarch tradition. And that reminded me that tradition is also in me and I'm like working with it and digesting it and trying to mm-hmm. come into new relationship with it. So that including those difficult relationships as well. Um, I think we all have those. So, yeah. So all of those um harmony and disharmony of this relationship form into the choirs of us. <laughs> I, I love the uh, inner, you know, the inner plurality. I, I call it my inner diversity. <laughs> I have all these racial profile and, and the gender of spectrum within me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, on Weaving Gepster Bed, there's some other uh, metaphors here. Um, the first thing Gebser talks about with um, this move into the aperspectival world and understanding of the self. Um, first of all, in these transformations, he's always mentioning this aspect of volition that we like to assume is we're doing this, right? We're making this next step or we're making this transformation with our agency. It certainly has a part to play, but there's this kind of mystery of agency, right? That our agency is both our own and not. Like there's a kind of relationality, even in our own singularity, right? A kind of mystery that we share. Um, we go down deep enough and there's the, it opens up to others, right? And I think Spring was speaking to that um, just now and then a little earlier. Uh, so so that, that inner openness in relationship, that shared sense of agency or interagency um, is really, I think, the core of what Geps are speaking to when he describes ego freedom. And he says like with the history of consciousness, we've had this sort of rigidification of boundaries in the ego and separate self sense, particularly in the last few hundred years. Uh, that isn't necessarily going to completely vanish, but it's, there's, a, there's a transparency that can open up, a permeability, right? A sensing into relationship and field. There's a, a Simon Don term that I really love and I, and I go back to a lot. Uh, especially lately, trans-individuation, right? Nothing is ever singularly individuating, no being. Every being is in relation to every other being as they they co-evolve and change and are in process. So it's a very relational and processual way of understanding, um, which can be often considered a very singular individual kind of thing going on. Instead, it's a kind of, it's a social thing. It's an ecological thing, right? All organisms become in relation to all other organisms becoming in relationship with each other. Um, 
and that I don't I, I just felt the call to kind of put this in here too. Um, in the context of the harvesting around the Emerge conference, I suggested playfully that we need a carrier bag theory of emergence. That in that same context of relationality, this is from Ursula K. Le Guin's. I'm playing off of her carrier bag theory of fiction, where she says, you know, a, a novel is more like a bundle, a medicine bundle, or a bag that has seeds and other other items in it, and they're all in like different relationship with each other, intentions and coherence and synergies, and it's very complex. And the, the, the idea of the novel is not to make it progress, but to allow those relationships to unfold as they need to for whatever we happen to be doing, healing, storytelling, cosmological weaving, etc. So seeing ourselves as this kind of cosmological weave, this plurality, and just holding that as a container for emergence, um, I think anyway, it would be a be much better way to start thinking about development, right? Or uh, how do we transform consciousness? Because it is as a method thinking ecologically, and it is um, also as a metaphor, very just beautiful. But um, where was I going with that other than uh, the relational self and thinking ecological and um, considering what we're going through right now and the whole history of consciousness all kind of coming to the fore in transparency uh, as a kind of medicine bundle, like a bundling up of relations of who we are and what we are, what we can become. I want to riff on this a little bit because one of the things I think I've been shifting in my understanding of how all this applies to coaching, you know, I think in the history of coaching is often conceived that, that, you know, it's the, the client is stepping into the coaching relationship as an individual that the coaches attending to the client as an individual to support their individual transformation and development and growth and learning, et cetera. And as I keep, I keep coming back to this curiosity, I like to keep this curiosity uh, activated of what's really going on here. And I think that that's actually at best only a partial truth. And I'm even on the fence of wondering if it's really true at all, but I'll save that for a moment. Uh, what I've started to reorient to is I know the coaching is going well when it feels to me like the relationship I have with the client, the relationship between the coach and the client is itself developing and transforming. And that if the relationship is, is deepening over time, I trust that the client winds up walking away, having experienced some deepening development and uh, for themselves, but I walk away having experienced some deep, deepening development for myself. And so what if really, you know, this shift here, and I think we're all pointing in the same direction as well, is, is more into, into this contextualized, deeply relational orientation to what's happening here, to what's unfolding. And which is a real contrast to, I think, the way things have been framed um, in this fragmented world that we're in, where everything has been separated and apparently pulled apart. But I think what we're all pointing to is that, in fact, that's only in a, 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 that's a, that's a construction. It's not a reality. And that this, you know, pulling things back into relationships and recognizing that, that we're actually all living in many contexts right? Um, this idea, 
that, you know, when we actually begin to explore uh, our own nature and our own beingness, that what we find is actually a diversity, right? And so, you know, there's, sometimes I say that, you know, we need to learn to embrace and love the diversity within us. And as we do that, we will learn to embrace and, and love the diversity between us, right? Which I think is a big issue in our culture these days. We've, we've struggled in this fragmented world to, em, to embrace uh, each other. And yet in this time of metacrisis, we're on, we're on the boat together. You know, we have to embrace each other and we have to embrace the diversity within us. Uh, equally, they, 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 it's the it's the exact same gesture, right? To embrace the diversity within us and to, to to embrace the diversity between us, and so I think the real call here. I know the whole summit here is about the evolution of coaching, and I think I think the whole call here is is for a a, a kind of coaching that that recognizes this, these multiple contexts, um, the, this, this deep relationality that we live in. Uh, that we are, we are relational, right? And, and it's it's not that I still won't, you know, respond if someone says, "Hey, Steve," but um, you know, I, I still will will respond. But um, but to see myself more as a relational being, more fundamentally and pri- and primarily, um, and to see what's actually happening in the midst of our coaching as more more primarily relational. Um, it seems to me that's what's that's a thread that I'm finding emerging in our conversation here. Um, just to jump in, and it's a thread that's emerging in the whole summit itself as we've been mm. coming together. And, and so I just actually, I really appreciate you doing that, Steve, because I just wanted to, to actually finish with that, which is it maybe if Spring and Jeremy could also add, and Steve, we haven't got long, but just, and I, and I know you're not a coach, Jeremy, so, but I, actually, I think that's great. I'd love to ask you anyway. So, like, what what would you invite coaches to do in the way Steve's just kind of articulated in a sense, like what coaching can become or can be in order to to resonate more deeply with our times? Like, what what invitation would you make for coaches or what, what would you bring in? Yeah, sorry. Um, Spring, maybe you would want to go. I need to gather my thoughts because I'm not a coach. So (laughs) coming at it in a different way. It's very exciting to hear what Steve talked about, this uh, relational way. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, um, I I forgot the name of the person who raised this, but um, have you heard this re-indigenize practice? So how do we build our how how do we actually cultivate the soil of relationship? Um, and uh, they concluded there there are several suggested practices like singing together, mm-hmm. uh, dancing together, eating together, and and I'm not saying that <laughs> that's well actually literally in in my practice I I create a, a improvisational a theater um, pr- practice where we, we kind of just like be child together. We play with each other and we bring ourselves, um, you know, whatever life struggle or our life celebration we, we're experiencing and turn that into games and, and, and the silly songs and the silly dance. I mean, they, 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 they sound simple, but, but they are profound. They, they, they actually 
um, allow us to have a place to stand outside of this industrialized life where we're constantly being assessed, evaluated, mm-hmm. scored, and et cetera. Not that that will always be there. I'm not, I don't want to discount that. And it has a great a role by itself, but we need another place to stand where we can just relax and be child. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, I think that that's the center place where my coaching practice is rooted. And from there, we, we can pull out a scoring and play with it. <laughs> we, we can assess our development scale and who cares? I mean, it's, it's another game we play. <laughs> um, um, but I, I think to do that as a coach, we, we, we need to do that with ourselves first is actually re-indigenize ourselves to actually allow us to give ourselves time to be with that part of us that can just have a laugh and be a child and be crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And Jeremy, do you want to, is there anything you want to add to this? Uh, I love everything spring just said. So, um, I would only add the extra metaphor of the carrier bag coach, right? Um, because I brought it up in the context of um, gatherings like this and what we do in relation to each other. How do we approach the, the work of uh, holding a conference in relationship to the, the land that we're on and place? And how do we learn to be animistic and indigenous again in the context of holding this complex planetary crisis? Like, it's like we're uprooted and then we're also coming home. Um, or as Le Guin says as well, um, I, I love Le Guin's work. So I bring up her examples all the time. To go is to return. Uh, to leave is to return. And I, I think it's very Taoist understanding as well. And uh, Taoism certainly influenced her. So I would say, yeah, how do we return? How do we come home? Uh, how do we learn how to do that? How can a, a coach uh, assist in that process in this relational ecological way? that uh, Spring was just speaking to. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm really touched. You know, there's something palpable here for me. Like this has been an exquisite conversation for me coming together. And, um, you know, my, my highest ambition for the summit was that, that these conversations would be um, a living expression of emergence of, of what is wanting to, to be born into the world. And I feel that today, you know, like that there's something here that's, that's transforming me uh, being in connection with you. And I can feel the, I can feel the, the resonance of relationship, you know, the, the, the field of relationship that's here and that's palpable. And so, so thank you for that. I just want to thank you each, each one of you for, for expressing yourself so coherently and generously. Yeah, Joe, you know, I would I'm really impressed you put the three of us together. I mean, I myself is just like having a blast <laughs> sharing this resonance <laughs> with these two gentlemen I first time met. <laughs> That's really <laughs> impressive. You had you picked up this composition. You are a great composition uh artist. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's you know, there's there is. It's it's so fascinating. You know, we're each coming from very different approaches and backgrounds and everything, but there there is something that I think we're each feeling we're each feeling into and uh, and beginning to unfold, and it's fun to it, it's fun to play in this space and to and to throw out some different different impressions of this and to feel around inside of it. And I think that that more of this is actually what's called for. 
you know, there's a, there is a generosity. Um, there's an openness, a, a curiosity. Uh, um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you all. You know, uh, I was going to say just real quick, this is an example of that carrier bag model. Like what a great <laughs> bundle you wove in here for us. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I do um, want to uh, say, where can we find out more about your work? So we don't have, well, maybe you could just name like um, a website or something where people could go. Cause I'm sure, sure they want to check you out. Uh, for me, just go to resonancepath.com. Yeah. All the information is there. Uh, for me, just go to mutations.blog for now. Everything is a portal to everything else. And for me, the, the website for the Aletheia Coach Training School is integralunfoldment.com. All right. Thanks so much. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.